I'm Charlotte Leslie and I'm the director of CMEC, the Conservative Middle East Council. Our guest today, Lieutenant General Sir Simon Mayle. He lived in the Yemeni port city of Aden and witnessed the decline of the British Empire when his RAF father was later stationed in Malaysia. After studying history at Balliol College, Oxford, he began a distinguished army career which saw him command the troops of the Omani Sultan and service in theatres from Kosovo to Iraq. He is a true scholar-soldier, with spells at Staff College and Oxford, where he penned a dissertation on Turkey. It has been a career that has intermingled with the astonishing last half-century of the Middle East, its politics, wars and uprisings. And he tells his story in a compelling autobiography, Soldier in the Sand, which he describes as a personal history of the modern Middle East. Simon, welcome. Good morning, Charlotte. So why did you write the book? What drove you to write it and what do you want to achieve out of it? Well, I've always been fascinated, as you've alluded to, my career by the Middle East and by family circumstances, by academic inclination, then by professional preference and then by professional necessity, particularly after 9-11. I've been drawn to the Middle East and I used to lecture on it and I never really wanted to write about it because I enjoy lecturing more than I enjoy writing. But I did feel it was appropriate given the complexity and dynamism of the Middle East, perhaps to try and write something that would be accessible, readable and accessible to the, what I, what I describe as the interested, informed, intelligent lay reader who may have touched on the Middle East, either professionally or on holiday in the Middle East, so a very, very large term for a very large and diverse area, be it Turkey or Egypt or the Gulf states or Iran that would perhaps explain and join up the dots for people and then use a sort of family story, a personal autobiography, a military memoir as the scaffolding to, to try and expose to people the, both the complexity and to an extent the, the fascination of the, of the Middle East when there's so many stereotypes around about it. At the start of your book, you recount an episode that I really like. I think you've just done a talk on a cruise ship or something and someone comes up to you afterwards. Do you remember that? Uh, yeah, well, I do. Well, to, to be honest, it almost, that was the one that really almost drove me over the edge. I'd been going around with their classic cocktail party anecdote of, you know, what are you doing? I'm writing my first book. Yes, nor am I, because everybody wants to, thinks they have a book in them, but actually getting down and writing the thing as anybody who has written a book will know is a remarkably, a remarkably demanding, demanding experience. Anyway, this delightful gentleman came up after I'd spent the best part of three hours explaining the Middle East through all the way back to the death of the prophet Muhammad up to the modern era. And he said, we really enjoy your talks, General. We're still a bit confused, he said, but thanks to you, he said earnestly, at a much higher level. And then he sort of hesitated and I hesitated. Then I laughed and he laughed. I said, I, I think I get what you mean. You're absolutely right. And if you don't mind, I will take this conversation and I will almost use it as the catalyst for the book. So the last line of the book, the, the anecdotes told in the opening introduction, and almost the last line of the book is still confused to mark, yes, full stop, but hopefully at a slightly higher level. Pretty well, The same might apply for our podcast listeners. <laughs> but your life seems to have been marked and intermingled with major events in the Middle East. So you, you grew up in Aden and your father is in the RAF. Can you tell us a bit about yes. that and, and how that formed your view of the Middle East at such a young age? My father joined the Air Force, an interesting career, early career, because although he was going to the Air Force, he went to Sandhurst. So he had a strong khaki backbone. So when years later I you know, demonstrated comprehensively, I couldn't pat my head and rub my stomach, couldn't follow him into the Air Force. He said, well, why don't you go to the army? But very early on in his career, he was posted, he'd just met my mother, at a bus stop in, in London. And he was then posted to the Canal Zone. And so he went off in 1952, 51, 52, at the time that NASA was overthrowing King Farouk. So he had a sort of interest there, and then he was dealing in Cyprus. So, and he was around at the time of the Suez Crisis, the year I was, I was born. But a couple of years after that, after the, the Suez Crisis, the British headquarters, British Middle East, moved to the port city of Aden. And my father was sent out there. He'd, he'd moved to be a, a pilot at that stage. So he was there and my, my mother, myself and my younger brother had just been born, came out on a troop ship, the SS Oxfordshire, and lived in Crater at what many Yemenis would say was the happiest time of a lot of South Yemenis history, to be honest with you. You know, well-administered, bureaucratically sound, pure, prosperous Aden as it was then. And so I was brought up with, you know, the sound of Arabic going down to the souk with my, with my mother with those people who know the Middle East well, that, that searing imp impression of heat, light, glare, dust, 
and I'm sure years later, when I eventually went to work with the Sultan of Oman, that the, those formative years between about three and five made me feel totally comfortable going back into, into the Middle East, listening to Arabic again alike. And, and for my parents, who was one, you know, they were relatively newly married, two, two young children, it was a, they would talk about it very, very much as some of the happiest days of their life. They, they, they loved that, and I'm sure they're very early influence you know, stayed with me the whole of my career, as my career took me inevitably into the Middle East because of global events. I mean, if we think of Yemen now, we associate it with the most diabolical humanitarian disaster, the most intractable of political issues. What was Yemen like politically when you were having, an, in some ways, an idyllic childhood there? Yes, well, I think it was the, it was the tail end of that sort of settled time for Aden. You know, Britain had taken it as a it was the only colony in the Middle East. Sometimes people forget that all our other relationships around the Gulf, you know, which we sustain and are very strong, were all protectorates and various degrees of truces and the like. Only Aden was a colony. And of course, outside Aden, there were certain, certain protectorates which were eventually joined up. But for about a hundred years, you know, the British presence had defended, you know, the tribes there against the sort of tribal warfare. In fact, in many ways, the British imposed a truce on, on warring, warring tribes. And of course, you know, the complexity of Yemen, even then, of course, was the Shia majority in North Yemen, the Zaydis, now the Houthis, and of course, the South Yemenis who, like their Omani neighbors, were very outward looking, rather moderate Sunni. They were the ones who took Islam to the Far East, money used to come back from Arva into areas like the Hadramat. And so in many ways, providing security allowed, as it does so often, allowed economic progress to be made. There was quite a big expat community from the Indian subcontinent there, trading. And many people had an idea that it could become the Singapore of the, of the Middle East. Maybe slightly fanciful, but it's, a, you know, it's an extraordinary physical position just at the entry to the Red Sea and the Arabian Ocean. But sadly, it, it, was, it was at the time where the fallout from the Suez crisis included Nasser's pan-Arabism, when he was actively, of course, trying to throw out colonial powers. And it was the height of the Cold War to an extent where Chinese and Russian Soviet influence there was trying to play on tribal revolutionary uh, trends in the region. All of it explicable, but I think it was very sad for Aden that we were both driven out and chose to go out as part of the withdrawal from East Suez. I'm only going to touch on this briefly because there's a whole podcast in it, but now and, and rightly, the concept of colonialism, British colonial history, that the bad bits that haven't been given the coverage that perhaps they should have done, the views from indigenous peoples are being looked at again. Do you think in amongst all that, we need to have a slightly more nuanced conversation about the benefits of liberty, self-determination, independence, and security, quality of life? Is there a conversation that we all need to have that's a bit more nuanced? I think it's a, very, a much more nuanced conversation. I totally understand, you know, the pendulum swings at one stage. There was great pride in Britain's imperial record, great pride in, in the colonies. Inevitably, some of that has been questioned now. But I think as the world moves forward and we see the, the problems that come with state failure, corruption, collapsing of public services, just basic issues of law and order, I think, that again, the, the pendulum will swing again and people will look back and say, poor, it's time. British rule, British administration, British governance was a, a, a remarkable benefit. Almost every country the British were in, the population increased hugely. And so I th think there is a case again for more, yes, more discussion, a more, a more open debate. And I think many people, and I saw it in Iraq, at a certain time when I was in Iraq, people would, to an extent, remember what life was like under Saddam. Children could go to school, wives could go out shopping, men could go to work and come back. And largely, if they weren't enemies of the state, they had security within which the basic functions of life, which most people are after, was able to happen. And I could sympathize with that because I think without security, good governance to an extent, a sort of uncorrupt police force, a bureaucracy that works for the people, almost nothing else happens, is there? And what you get is just migration. People either leave or, or all they can do is subsist. And undoubtedly, Yemenis I've talked to, and I'm not remotely sort of trying to do some fanciful rewrite of history, will say that the best time Yemen had, because it has had a very, very fractured, volatile, turbulent history, what was when the British almost demanded security and governed as far as they could within their own precepts for the benefit of the, the Yemeni people. I'd like to come back to Iraq, the Iraq war, both Gulf wars a bit later, but I guess it's quite difficult even to talk about the value of security without appearing to be condoning 
the most diabolical human rights abuse. Really has been very difficult when we aspire to a certain set of values and behaviours from governments and public bodies to nuance like that. But I think half our difficulty when we have intervened in certain places is to not factor in the circumstances of how countries have been formed, their own political experiences, both good and bad, and bring a whole set of assumptions that work very well for Western democracies. But for goodness sake, you know, we went through two ghastly world wars ourselves and a great ideological standoff with the Soviet Union. And I think sometimes we are rather too keen to criticize or adopt a superior approach. And I think, as we know, as we watch the aftermath of our withdrawal from Afghanistan or what we fail to achieve in Iraq, and there are certain scenarios under which the outcome in Iraq could have been, could have been different. But again, we made some ghastly assumptions early on that wrecked our ability actually to continue to control the development of Iraq. So I think we've taken, having taken a sort of 30 year holiday from history, idealism is great in itself, but it does need to be tempered with realism when you're going into public policy and particularly engagement with other parts of the world. Going back to your your life, you've been brought up in Aden and you then go on, you, you're at, I think your father is posted to Malaysia. Yes. At boarding school. Yes. I was one of those traditional children being sent back as a junior jet ranger. And then you went to Balliol College, Oxford. Indeed. And studied history. As you did, of course, Charlotte. I'm afraid so. <laughs> many, many decades after me. What was going on in the Middle East during the time you were at university? Well, I lived there in 75 and I was in Malaysia flying back at the time of the Six Day War and that extraordinary military event with, you know, huge sort of regional consequences of the absolute demonstration of Israeli military superiority, which absolutely stopped, of course, Gamal Abdel Nasser's sort of pan-Arabism, that extraordinary energy that was in the Arab world as a result of Suez. And then a little later on, of course, I was late in my time at school with the Yom Kippur War where the Egyptians sort of re-established their own sense of dignity by inflicting quite a major defeat on the Israelis. Of course, after that, I was brought up trying to do my revision at school by candlelight during the three-day weeks. So the oil embargo shades of it now with Russia, the use of energy as a weapon. So I went into Oxford, Oxford is 75, with the Middle East sort of quite firmly up in our consciousness as young men and women there, you know, setting out on our tertiary education. Can I just cut in for any of our listeners who may be just beginning to look at the Middle East and study the Middle East, can you describe what went on with the Yom Kippur War and what relationship our energy crisis had to foreign policy decisions and geopolitics? Yes, well, the Yom Kippur War was the most extraordinary, again, tactically and operationally, a brilliant move by Anwar Sadat, who'd taken over as president. And he really did want to find a way to get Sinai back, which the Egyptians had lost in the Six-Day War, re-establish the dignity of the Arabs and certainly the Egyptians after the defeat of 67 and basically took advantage of Israeli complacency and, and intelligence failure to cross the Suez Canal and advance very sharply into the Sinai. The Israelis were very firmly on the back foot at that time. The Syrians were also launching an attack in the Galat and they'd done it in great secrecy and in many ways very great bravery and actually great military competence. But the Israelis, with their back to the wall, fighting really for their existence, supported by President Nixon at that time and a great inload of American weaponry, turned the tide in the Sinai and eventually, in fact, Ariel Sharon went back across the Suez Canal and cut off the Egyptian Third Army in Sinai. But in the peace that followed, eventually in 79, the Egyptians got back Sinai and a peace treaty was signed, which basically still exists today. But the short-term effect was the Gulf Arabs in particular demonstrated solidarity with the Palestinians and the Egyptians to use oil as a weapon. And the price of oil quadrupled in the space of months. And it was at a time, certainly in the United Kingdom, where we were going through the Heath government and there was an awful lot of industrial unrest with strikes, railway workers, power workers. So the combination of an oil embargo, the huge rise in energy prices, uh, particularly oil, gas was less important at that stage, and problems with coal meant that the whole of Western Europe was plunged into a, a recessionary period. And that, of course, was still at a time when we were facing off the Soviet Union in the Cold War. And in America, again, for those old enough to remember, they put a 50 mile or 55 mile an hour speed limit. So it was a hell of a wake up call and a huge transfer of wealth to the Gulf states, particularly the Gulf states. So the modern Middle East was really 
fashion to an extent as the British withdrew from east of Suez and the big social political changes in the Middle East and, and this transfer, well, certainly to the, to the Gulf countries. And I would argue that the Gulf rulers have been very good stewards of that money in many ways, given where they were societally, politically, culturally in the 70s and where they've moved in the, in the intervening 45 years. I'd like to come to that transformation later, but I guess what you're saying is, particularly for parliamentarians who serve constituents, who are often criticised for going abroad, for going on trips, and for understanding the wider world, I guess what you're saying is that a decision that was taken about the Middle East had a dramatic effect on domestic affairs in the UK, both economic and social. And you're doing your homework by candlelight. It was part of a period of Britain that we often think of as quintessentially British. But actually you're saying it had its origins, at least, at least partially, in foreign policy decisions. It might have been domestically, but I think it was the real break from, I suppose, the driving force behind Britain 200 years ago, which was expansion. By the time we came to 73, the Yom Kippur War, it was actually about five years after the Wilson government and Dennis Healy had made the decision to withdraw from use of Suez. And some of that was undoubtedly economic weakness. Some of it was undoubtedly decolonization and the sort of non-aligned movement. And some of it, I'm afraid, was a traditional Labour Party socialist desire to reverse imperialist colonial drive. And so we pulled out of the Far East to start with, which was Singapore, Malaysia. And then to everybody's amazement, although, as I said, the Gulf states were not colonies at all, they had a protectorate arrangement under which they had thrived and continued to, to an extent. And we pulled out of the Gulf and we had pulled out of Aden. And of course, the Gulf states at that stage had offered to pay for our presence there. And people said, oh, no, said, oh we're not going to do this, you know, how shocking. Actually, we would be paid by the German government to be providing security under NATO. So there was nothing wrong with this, but it was a classic socialist instinct. And we'd met, come 73, that we had lost our foreign policy leverage in the Gulf. When we were hit with the results of the Yom Kippur War, the oil embargo, instead of having this amazing relationship which we sustained and providing protection, security, administrative competence, to our friends in the Gulf. We deserted them as far as they were concerned. And they felt exposed, exposed to a very, very strong rising Iran at the time under the Shah, clearly exposed to some of the pan-Arab instincts of NASA, but that was also Syria and I Iraq. And I, to my mind, it was one of the great strategic failures of Great Britain. We've paid for it in, in many ways ever since. Of course, as you know, we are back there and we may cover the fact that we've got our first military base east of Suez since 1971 in, in Bahrain again. Which you had a particular uh, role. Which I had a particular role in, but one of my proudest, proudest legacies. But it's a part of the world that continues to be hugely important. The Americans tried to step away from it, as we know. We're coming sort of up to date here. We've been hit by another energy crisis because of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Lo and behold, despite all the enthusiasm of the green lobby and renewables, etc., we're having to look back to the Middle East and security of supplies there. This transition as we move, no, amen to that. We all understand climate change, we all understand wanting to get off fossil fuels. But there is no, with a rising global population, particularly in the poorer parts of the world, there is no scenario that tells us we will not need fossil fuels well into this century. And by trying to come off them and stifle investment in them or undermining the security of places where are absolutely critical to our long-term stability, our own, let alone other parts of the world, that we're all globally collected. We rather foolishly pulled away from an area that should have been of great importance, where we had huge amount of regard. And we've, to an extent, sought to sort of catch up ever since then, because we could never pull out of that area. And I'm delighted that we now have a much more nuanced approach to going to these countries who are extraordinarily wealthy. And who've actually, in many cases, recycled that wealth back into the prosperity agenda of the United Kingdom and are wrestling themselves with their own cultural, social, political issues. And we should be there as good friends to help them manage that transition themselves. I'm Charlotte Leslie. I'm speaking to Lieutenant General Sir Simon Mayle, former Middle East advisor to the Ministry of Defence, on his book, Soldier in the Sand. So we step away from east of Suez, but by the early 90s, we have the first Gulf War and then we're back. How does that fit in with your life? Where were you and what was your involvement in that? Well, I had very fortuitously managed to, thanks to somebody saying what you need to do is get sand between your toes, to find that we still had a very large training presence and command presence in Oman. So in 1985, I was sent to Oman to command an Omani tank squad. So I was taught Arabic, it was a bit rushed, and I had the great joy 
of going back to a part of the world that I sort of instinctively felt because of these, as I said, formative years in Aden that I, that I loved and that spent three of the very happiest years of my life in a wonderful country. But I came back from Oman to Staff College in 88 and none of us anticipating the Soviet Union would collapse or the Berlin Wall would collapse and be in due course the Soviet Union. So I came back largely to study again, going back to my, my sort of early roots in Germany when I was a young lieutenant. And of course, suddenly the Berlin Wall collapsed. And very quickly after that, Saddam, having fought his eight-year war with the Iranians, suddenly invaded Kuwait and I was in the Ministry of Defence in the middle of summer, which is always the dog days of all government departments. Nobody in there. And getting a phone call saying, have you seen what's happening in Kuwait? And I did a sort of Churchillian attempt to go around garnering support for, for my presence in the Gulf War because, you know, it sounds a bit puerile to say it now, but, you know, we were very young then. We'd seen the, the Falklands War. We, you know, we knew what cost it had come at, but, you know, we had joined the army to serve. And eventually Johnny Watts, who had been my chief of defence staff in Oman, I bumped into him at a drinks party and I said, I should be there. I speak Arabic. I've commanded Arab soldiers, you know, General, you've got to get me out there. And he said, well, General Peter de la Bilia has always been my second in command in the SAS. I'll write to him. And I waited and waited and waited a few more weeks and eventually rang him up. And his wife answered and she said, yeah, well, Johnny has written to Peter. I hope you haven't changed your mind about wanting to go. And I said, oh, no, rather. Anyway, Di Watts said, well, well, Johnny's rather implied to Peter he can't win the war without you. And he's probably slightly overstated this. But two weeks later, I was on a plane to join Rupert Smith's headquarters. Because that as a professional soldier and that as somebody who had you know, wanted to be a great military enterprise. But in the Middle East, a part of the world, I genuinely thought I could make some contribution. And although early on, I was very firmly with the British contingent as operations officer. Later on, after we had retaken Kuwait, because I was an Arabic speaker, I went to negotiate the reopening of logistic lines through the Syrians and Egyptians who extraordinarily were, were there alongside us as part of a great coalition in 91. And the whole world, of course, had changed there with, at that stage, yes, the collapse of the Soviet Union, yes, the collapse of the Warsaw Pact, yes, the fall of the Berlin Wall. So everything was in, in play, in flux at, the, at that stage, quite remarkable. I think you say in the book that you felt the war ended a bit too early. The Tory party chose to defenestrate Margaret Thatcher in November 1990, to the amazement of our allies. Again, she had this iconic status outside our island, and the iconic stays within it. And we couldn't believe it as we were going to the largest land war almost since the Second World War, that our leader, our prime minister, had been defenestrated by an internal <laughs> Tory party coup in many ways. I just don't think we'd have ceased military operations as quickly as we did if Margaret Thatcher had been there. And I don't think we'd have ended up with the ceasefire rather than the peace settlement with Iraq that we got, again, if Margaret Thatcher had been there. John Major just simply didn't have the moral or political authority to go and beat the Americans up in the nicest possible way for all our interests in a way that Margaret Thatcher would have done. And I was very fortunate many years later to sit next to her at a dinner party and manoeuvred myself next to her and said, I've always wanted to know whether you felt we'd stop the war too early. And she said, we absolutely had, the, the job hadn't been finished. And we know it hadn't, either militarily, really, or politically. We all dashed for the exit. And in many ways, our failure to do that, they undoubtedly influenced the way the drum beat to war in 2003 after 9-11. I, I was not an advocate, I have to say, for going on to Baghdad, but I was an advocate for having Saddam Hussein across the table, signing a proper peace deal, which would have been about reparations, the Republican Guard, but it was the ceasefire. And as we know, we allowed such elements and clauses in the ceasefire as continued to use helicopters, which we know when the Shia rose up, we used to massacre the opponents of Saddam. And so I think it was a huge missed opportunity. Was Thatcher the last British Prime Minister to really, in the nicest possible way, push the Americans about? Yes, yes. I, I think because it was a Prime Minister with a real huge amount of experience at that stage, of course, a great grasp of, I think, geopolitics, a genuine strategic thinker and with an extraordinary moral authority. I wouldn't say pushed the Americans around, but she knew George Bush extremely well. The 1990s were very much the Balkans, as you can recall, Dayton, Bosnia. And it was, of course, the great height of the sort of, do I say, the Francis Fukuyama vision. I don't want to caricature, but the end of history, you know, the ideological wars were over, universal values. And it was also the time of Huntington, who, to my mind, was a lot more prescient about the sad reality of human nature and leadership and how you're going to look at Putin now, 
I certainly it is driven by historical grievance, historical inspirations, you know, cultural identity, or you could look at China. And so we were managing that. And then 9-11, I wouldn't say shouldn't have come as a shock. It was a shock, but we had seen a, a potential attack on the, the Twin Towers in 93. We had watched, of course, again, another formative experience while we were sort of looking this way, you know, in the tail end of the Cold War, of course, the Soviets had gone into Afghanistan. And again, it is worth, for your listeners, it has to be said that a lot of the oil wealth that went into Saudi Arabia was then channeled into support from the Mujahideen as the House of Saud tried to buy off its own issues internally on the political extremism side. That came back to haunt us again, a failure to understand that while tackling the Soviets in Afghanistan and supporting people through the ideological prism, there was another ideology growing, which was going to be Al-Qaeda, Takfiri extremism. Can you explain Takfiri? Takfiri really is, is those within the Islamic world, Muslim world, who arrogate themselves the ability to define who is a heretic. But it does mean that the very obvious ones, like you can launch wars against infidels, very obviously. It's very Sunni. It's a very Sunni expression, so you can launch wars against Shia. But eventually, under Al-Qaeda and Islamic State, it expands even further. So if you can launch wars or attack people as heretics who are compromisers, illegitimate regimes, secularists, women, human rights. And so it's an extremist form, I suppose, of, of, of the very further far right spectrum of Islamism. And of course, being very, very violent. And that takes us almost up to a, the era. But we weren't watching this as it grew. We cheered it on in a sense because we'd harnessed it in the fight against the Soviet Union. We didn't understand what was going to happen after the great victory, which is how it was portrayed throughout the Islamic world against the godless atheists of the Soviet Union. And we didn't see that so many of the people who had been encouraged or drawn to go to the fight in Afghanistan would come back into the Gulf states, North Africa, and they would have their own vision about how legitimate the Gulf monarchies, or dare I say the autocrats of North Africa or Egypt, Syria, Iraq. And we'd see elements of that during the Arab Spring later on come up alongside the sort of young liberal reformists engaged in coalition, which was called split up before that. But we had, as I say, seen Al-Qaeda rise. They carried out attacks on the U.S. embassies in Kenya and Tanzania. They tried to bring down the Twin Towers in 93. And so the intelligence networks were picking up that Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda and that tendency, the Takfiri tendency, were trying to launch a major attack on the West. In fact, their primary enemy was really the House of Saud. But the idea was to try and get a shocking, shocking terrorist attack in the West that might draw the West into the Middle East that might then undermine again the legitimacy of the Gulf monarchies, which might then lead to an overthrow. That was the sort of strategy. But it's still, as we all know, those who's old enough to have been there on the day will remember the absolute shock of seeing that attack on the Twin Towers. And from that, so much of what has happened in the last 20 years flew up. Some of it very, very understandable policy response to this terrorist attack and some of it, unfortunately, very poorly thought through political actions and military actions that have had consequences. Many people at the time, I remember it and I remember that shocking day in 2003, asked, okay, I can see the connection between Al-Qaeda. What's the connection between Al-Qaeda and Iraq? What are we doing going into Iraq? I would agree entirely. And anybody who studied the Middle East would have said that not only were people like the House of Saud the target of the attack theories, you know, the people who declare people as illegitimate leaders. There was absolutely no other than the most opportune coalition of interest between Al-Qaeda and either the Egyptian president, the Syrian president, well, who was a Shia, of course, or Saddam Hussein. And anybody who understood Muslim Islamist ideology would have said that is rubbish. Al-Qaeda occasionally did deals with, with the Shia regime in Tehran because they shared a sort of target set of the Gulf monarchies. So anything to do with, but ideologically, absolutely nothing between a secularist, really, Ba'athist leader like Saddam in Iraq and, and Al-Qaeda. So manufactured. And of course, the other one, of course, was the whole issue of the weapons of mass destruction. Where were you during this period? I was actually in Kosovo. I'd gone out to save the big, big exercise with the Omanis in 91. I was commanding a brigade. So I was commanding a brigade when I was sitting in my brigade headquarters and through came the news about the attack on the Twin Towers. So the headquarters that was going to run the big exercise in Oman, which had been scheduled for a long time, the British government had almost cancelled it. That was Tony Blair. We tried to do it again later on under the Tories. And luckily enough of us went in and said, this is a really important ally. We've got to go ahead with it. So we were running this exercise. 
the headquarters that was going to run it was then shifted to go and run the operation in Afghanistan. And I went out to Oman. So while we were doing the, the operations in Afghanistan, the decapitation of Al-Qaeda, the actual decapitation of Osama bin Laden took, my goodness, another five years, I think. And the overthrow of the Taliban. I was, I was in Oman. I then came back and I took my brigade to Kosovo. So that took up 2002. And at that stage, what was very conscious, suddenly the Balkans was very much on the back burner. We began to watch the drumbeat of war for, a, for an operation against Iraq. The time of the invasion of Iraq, I was actually at the Royal College of Defence, a really fantastic organisation in Belgrave Square, set up by Churchill. On the one hand to, really in the wake of his scarring from the Gallipoli campaign, on the one hand to try and educate officers on the complexity of policy making for politicians, and on the other hand to try and educate politicians and civil service on, on both the utility and the limitations of the use of military force. So I was there with people from 50 different nations, including a lot of our friends from the Sunni Arab world, the Gulf, who watched this with increasing concern that we didn't quite understand or didn't appear to be demonstrated, we understood the complexity of the situation in Iraq if we were going to go in and overthrow Saddam. And in that well-quoted line, tell me how this ends, which very often is what the military need to say, tell me how this ends politically, because this is Clausewitz, this is politics by other means. When you tell me what your political objectives are, I can then give you an assessment of where I best think the military arm can be used in support of your political objectives. And if you get your political objectives right, you'll make our life as military men much easier. And of course, that disconnect was all too apparent very quickly after the overthrow of Saddam later that year. And the Sunni Arabs on the course, all quite senior, said, do you really understand what you're going into? And of course, it, it doesn't seem to have properly ended. And many people blame the rise of ISIS in Iraq on mismanagement of the rebuilding of Iraq. Yes. And tackling your book, what you call the surge of the surge of extremism. Yes. Uh, and again, one hates to be, you know, wise with hindsight. I like to think one, because one had studied this, because of course we Brits had experience of trying to run Iraq. You know, Iraq did fall out of the collapse of the Ottoman Empire, the Sykes-Picot Agreement, not totally out of that. Uh, and as soon as we went into Iraq in the 1920s, we found ourselves under attack by Shia tribes, by Sunni tribes, by the Kurds. You know, we had to manage the deep, complex diversity of that country, birthplace of civilization, Euphrates, Tigris, etc. So we should have been better friends to the Americans. And I blame Blair, but I blame the political class in some ways for not making it their business to understand. It's still very much on the Francis Fukuyama end of history. Let's forget about these things, these quaint, quaint divisions between Sunnis and Shias and Kurds. And, you know, it's all so, so 19th, 20th century. But history absolutely came back to so cautious from behind on this one. And I said to people, we're going to go in and overthrow Saddam Hussein. I get that. And then we're going to bring democracy, which is absolutely going to guarantee in perpetuity a sheer domination of Iraq. And remember, Baghdad is the great capital city of the golden age, the high watermark of Arab Sunni leadership of the Muslim world. And if you empower the Shia de facto, you are going to empower the Iranians. And again, this is not to say don't do it. This is just to say, are we quite clear? what the consequences of empowering the Shia are. And of course, after we failed to go in with enough force, quite enough to overthrow Saddam, never, that was never an issue. Was it enough to then clamp down, produce that security we talked about earlier, Charlotte, clamp down on security while we then took a deep breath to what we did. And then of course we compounded it, well-trodden story, ICPA orders number one and two, you know, Coalition Authority, where we debathized, like the Soviet Union, you couldn't be an engineer, you couldn't be a teacher, you couldn't be a bureaucrat unless you were in the Ba'ath Party, like the Nazi Party, like the Soviet Union or the Communist Party. So we instantly said, if you're in the Ba'ath Party, you haven't got a job anymore. The people who would have run the country on the coalition's behalf. And then, of course, we disbanded the Iraqi security forces at a time when security was the key issue in order to start trying to rechannel the wealth of Iraq back into the development of Iraq. And very quickly, we were up against the Ba'ath Party, you know, the remnants of the Ba'ath Party who started stirring up attacks on the coalition. We were then up against those members of the Sunni community who we put out of a job, who began to support the insurgency. We then began to attract all the Takfiri ideologues from all over the Arab world, those who'd fought in Afghanistan, those who'd been thrown out of Afghanistan, those who'd gone back to North Africa, 
They were facilitated, of course, by the Syrians, surprisingly. And then, of course, the Shia militia began to, to rise up. And, you know, many of them were, of course, fighting each other. Kurds stood, stood back a bit at that stage. So the Takfiris aligned at that stage with the Ba'athists to have a crack at the Shia. Of course, the Shia are viewed as heretics, particularly by the Takfiris. The Arabs don't like the Persians, because that's a long-standing, millennia-old ethnic division there. And they'd all had, then have a kick at the coalition on the way past. So we, we were managing a civil war, while it was also a civil war that was trying to throw us out as well. And our reputation for competence, our military credibility was shredded. Blair was complicit, and I understand certain amounts, but we want to be alongside the Americans on major issues. But his failure to understand, to my mind, history, his failure to ask the really important questions, which is not, can we overthrow Saddam? If the Americans are up for this, we will overthrow Saddam. What are we doing after it? So unfortunately, the tragedy, and here we are 20 years on, so much against squandered opportunity in many ways and then squandered lives. And then only seven years, in hindsight, it doesn't seem like very long. Only seven years later, just about, you get the Arab Spring, which fits into this already very destabilized Arab world. It was a real difficulty. In Britain, of course, again, politics had moved on. Blair had changed over. Brown had come in. Brown could see no particular domestic advantage to these operations campaigns. We'd largely pulled out of Iraq by that stage. The Americans had been coming in the surge. It was the time when I was the deputy commander there. This is six, seven. The surge actually was hugely effective, but largely because it was accompanied by a, a really sophisticated attempt to drive a wedge between the sort of what I would call the secular Iraqi Arabs and the outside attack theorists, you know, the violent, really violent extremist element. And we managed then to basically come to a truce with the Shia militia, etc. And we had transferred a lot of our activity and effort into Afghanistan there. But of course, we'd taken our eye off the ball in Afghanistan when we went in overthrew the Taliban, because we'd gone into Iraq on a whole set of false assumptions, then put Afghanistan on the back burner for about five or six years, gone back into Afghanistan, and again, lost momentum there. But at that stage, not only was there degree of chaos in Iraq, we were suddenly, as you quite rightly say, had this extraordinary incident in Tunisia of the orange seller setting fire to himself, which suddenly ignited a whole series of uprisings across the Arab world. They were largely, of course, interestingly, in the autocrat world. It was largely, yes, Yemen, a bit of an outsider, but Tunisia, Libya, Egypt, and Syria. Iraq, funnily enough, had gone through such turmoil, but it had elections, and the Shia had largely dominated, that there were ripples of the Arab Spring there, but less so. And it didn't really touch the Gulf monarchies. Bahrain, of course, is different from the rest because of the nature of the Bahraini royal family being a, a sort of up to point a minority monarchy because the, the bulk of Bahrain is Shia. How much was what I would call reform and how much was generated by this interconfessional, long-standing interconfessional divide would be difficult. But undoubtedly on the back of the Arab Spring, that was a catalyst for, for really, you know, really quite difficult policymaking towards a very cl- close ally there. So inspired a bit, of course, because the, the Iranians began to to feed into that. But what was interesting, Charles, again, as you'll know, is this coalition I was referring to. So not only did you have the people that, to an extent, we made too many assumptions about, they were young, they were liberal, they were women, they were educated. It was people who spoke English, people who traveled. But it was also very socially conservative, very religiously pious, and sometimes very extremist elements. Muslim Brotherhood, certainly the Takfiris. They joined together knowing what they were against and were keen to get rid of. But what we found very soon after, certainly in Libya, certainly the early days of Egypt and absolutely in Syria, that the, that coalition sprang apart very quickly. And we were, again, were, I don't think we're clever enough or nuanced enough to say we need to see there are elements within the Arab Spring, some of which we applaud and absolutely want to support, and others which actually will go backwards in terms of the sort of things that we would hold dear. These people want to get rid of the autocrats precisely because they're quite secular, they're quite Western, they're aligned with the West on security issues. And we saw it certainly in, in Egypt when the Muslim Brotherhood probably made their run too early and the deep state, President Sisi now, were, were pushed back.
I'm Charlotte Leslie. I'm speaking to Lieutenant General Sir Simon Mayle, former Middle East advisor to the Ministry of Defence, on his book, Soldier in the Sand. Simon, you've touched on it already. Do you think we've sufficiently understood the dichotomy between democracy, which we always see as a good <clears> thing, <throat> and the so is it the Islamism or the very religious, non-secular governments and leaderships that that democracy tends to bring in in lots of parts of the world, which then paradoxically moves away from democracy again through its its basic structures and systems? Well, I think it's very difficult and it, it does present, and as I say, I don't wish to snipe from the sidelines at all. I've been in government as it were, I mean, as a, obviously as a bureaucrat, military bureaucrat in the Ministry of Defence. So I know how difficult it is for politicians, and you've been there yourself, Charlotte, as a genuine elected member of the British people, the pressures on politicians individually, because many of them are viewing some of these issues through actually not a high baseline of knowledge. That's why bureaucracies exist to support decision-making. But the set of assumptions that we take with us when we apply to other parts of the world sometimes act against us. But equally, it's very difficult, as you mentioned earlier, to, to not go with a full-fat liberal democratic mould. But the trouble is, and we Brits, again, should know this from Northern Ireland, is that when you go into places that are either ethnically or confessionally very divided, people don't vote on political agendas. They don't vote for what your view is on the health service or education or where you stand on foreign aid. They largely vote in line with their confessional or ethnic identity. Hence, the only way Shia were going to vote in Iraq was going to be for Shia. And the only way then a Shia government was going to act was to, to an extent, either exclude or oppress the Sunni or, or the Kurds. The only way Saddam could stay in power because he was from a minority, the Sunnis were a minority in Iraq, or Bashar Assad, Alawite minority in Syria, is to run an autocratic state. Other than that, as a minority, you are going to be oppressed by the majority. So when you say, let's have democracy elections, We've seen all over the world how those so-called democratic elections do not lead to what we assume are democratic outcomes, because we always assume a democratic outcome is broadly a liberal outcome, and it's not. But people would say in Iraq and Syria in the early days, perhaps the glory days, you'd say, that minority rights were much better protected, that religious rights of minorities were better protected, that women's rights were better protected, that those secular issues were better protected. Now, the back of it was a very unpleasant regime that was absolutely brutalizing on those who objected to it. But again, it, it was this, this nuance that was not seen, that sometimes, extraordinarily, autocrats protected minorities and other elements that we would view as liberal, that actually a democratically elected government probably wouldn't, because it would be confessionally or ethnically based, and would therefore define itself by its opposition to other diverse elements of that society. And that diversity, both ethnic and religious, is so much stronger than it is now in the secularized West. And therefore, we don't either understand it, we don't sympathize with it, and we're very bad at factoring it into our political nuanced discussion because it looks, can look a bit exercising our superiority. We don't want to acknowledge that these people are different, you know, political backgrounds. We're just going to take our model, plonk it down, and when it doesn't work, we're going to stand back and raise our hands in horror. One of the most difficult and significant decisions that the West collectively made after the Arab Spring was intervention in Syria and Obama's red line on intervening mm -hmm. if there was evidence, credible evidence of chemical weapons being used. That decision was taken to Parliament to be democratically decided. Ed Miliband then, leader of the opposition, backtracked on an agreement that had been made and we ended up deciding not to join the US and then Obama obviously ends up not following through yeah. on his red line. What's been the significance of that decision? And we're speaking now as Russia's still waging its illegal war in mm. Ukraine and Russia stepped into the gap. Yeah. What was the impact of that decision on the Middle East and geopolitics and where we are now? I think it's a direct linkage. I was Deputy Chief of Defence Staff for Operations then. We were doing the planning to be alongside the Americans. I absolutely thought that we, we again, were, were failing to spot the very unpleasant elements of the Syrian resistance. Again, back to just trying to be really clear-sighted about who was objecting to the Assad regime. The Muslim Brotherhood were there, again, whose aspirations, objectives don't remotely align with ours in terms of anything. The Takfiris were back in play. A lot of those had been expelled, really, from Iraq 
either by a Shia government or by coalition supporters, were going in there. Of course, that's where Al-Qaeda then morphed into Islamic State, came back into Iraq shortly after that. But undoubtedly, we didn't approve more than that. We were trying to support a coalition of various like-minded people to overthrow uh, Bashar Assad, or at least stop him conducting the war in which he, the way he was doing it. And we were given a cast iron reason on the back of Obama's red line with the use of chemical weapons to a strike. Now, I don't think any strike would have changed the facts on the ground, but a strike would have sent a very strong message globally that there were red lines, there was behavior that was beyond the pale that needed to be confronted. And that would have sent a strong message to the Russians as well, who of course at that stage were backing, and perhaps the Iranians. Of course, the Iranians at that stage again were backing. Bashar said that we were serious, that we, we wanted a seat at the table. But when I'm afraid David Cameron and I, and I, again, I blame Ed Miliband, but David Cameron didn't manage the parliamentary arithmetic well. It went too early. I was always amazed that the British decided we'd make our decision before we saw what John Kerry and Obama were going to do. And then Cameron could have parlayed that into a case in the British Parliament. When we failed, I say we, you know, democratically failed to get a, an agreement. I'm actually a fan of the royal prerogative. I think the executive should reserve to itself the right to take these decisions. No one wants to go to war. The more people you ask, the less people want to get involved. I get that. But we absolutely then supported those people in America who didn't want to get involved. And Obama then decided he wouldn't put it to Congress because in Congress, what had happened in Britain would be used, parlayed against the case he was going to make. And so we, as you will well remember, allowed the Russians to step in and say, we will de-chemicalize the regime we're supporting. We'll continue to absolutely support it in all sorts of other ways. So they became the weather maker in that part of the world. And undoubtedly, you know, it was only shortly after that, that the Russians annexed Crimea. And I'm sure Putin looked at the West at that stage, saw we got our fingers so badly burned in our interventions in Iraq, could see which way it was going in Afghanistan. We'd already declared we were going to be out by 2014. So I think we unsettled our allies. I wrote a, a letter about this saying, you know, this is what various audiences are now going to hear on the basis of that decision. And that was the British decision, to be honest with you, before the Americans didn't cross that red line. We're going to empower our enemies. We're going to unsettle our allies. And we're going to just add again to our decreasing stock of credibility in the region. There are those who are our natural strategic friends who look at us and when they're being friendly, critical friends, say, well, look, you have Iraq 2003, you have no judgment. You have Syria 2013, you have no balls, excuse me for listeners. And then you have Afghanistan 2021, you have no staying power. We want to be your friends. We want you to be our allies of choice. But can you tell us why you would be? Yes. Do you think we've clocked that? And do you think one of the things that I think has been noticeable is the West's shock and surprise that Gulf states have abstained on various UN Security Council resolutions on the aggression of Russia, and that's caused shock and anger among some circles in the West. Should we have been surprised? And does that illustrate a certain lack of understanding of how we ourselves have seen as a result of our foreign policy decisions? I think all those points are really well made, Charlotte. And I, I've watched, you know, I left the army, whatever, six or so years ago. I've, I've watched a bit of dismay, our reputation and credibility. And by our, I mean the West, I suppose. And we're, we're, we're a small, but we're a significant player. That is why, I suppose, my contribution to going back into the Gulf in a proper bricks and mortar way, I, I feel so proud of because it was, a, it was a demonstration intent. Whereas before that, our presence in the Gulf operationally always looked like a, you know, we're, we're coming and going. And that was under Theresa May. We're back from east of Suez. Is that, is that? Was so that... Cameron, Cameron started using it first. Mm -hmm. I was delighted to say. But what it was, and I, you know, I recall it's in the book. You've you know, got a square named after you. I have a square named after me in Mail Square, which was a very, very handsome gesture by the senior service. But I remember Philip Hammond saying to me, well, I hear you say about wanting to get back into the Gulf sign, but we have been there for the last 40, 45 years. I said, we've been there one year, 40 times. Actually, I'd say we've been there six months, 80 times. And ever since we pulled out in 71, that's what it looks like. That was the significance psychologically. Now that's the Brits. The Americans obviously have their bases there. But there's no doubt about it that damage, to my mind, to our credibility and our reputation for competence and staying power, a knock has been taken. That was actually the interesting thing about Biden going back to Jeddah, admittedly going to the GCC, but seeing the crown prince. I mean, the Jamal Khashoggi incident was a shocker, but a lot of shocking things happen and they're happening every day in Ukraine. Yes, 
we know the issues there, but it's a hugely important strategic partner. They listen to what we say. They listen to Reggie. They watch our actions and they worry about it. And certainly for a time, stand fast the invasion of Ukraine. Russia looked like a more reliable ally. It didn't come with any conditionality. It didn't go around preaching. It spoke to certain socially conservative issues in the Middle East about family and religion that sounded more appealing to socially conservative religiously pious societies than did sort of full fat liberalism that went with the Western engagement. Again, it's not to say we step back from these things, but sometimes you've got to be nuanced. I was listening to somebody talking from Saudi Arabia the other day who was making it very clear, our geostrategic alignment remains with the West, but you've got to meet us halfway to, to underpin our assumption because we worry about our own security. At the present time, our geoeconomic alignment is moving towards China, and that's giving us a tension that we never expected to have. We always, always assumed that we would embark on our own reform movements, which we're doing, we're diversifying, we're liberalizing, we're doing a whole raft of things which should be in line with the sort of things you've been telling us and asking us to do for a long time. And we get that. It's in our industry that we know the demography. You're talking about Vision 2030. Among others. Among others. All of them have a sort of Vision 2030. And you'll know, because you go there often, Charlotte, that the, you know, the stereotype has been left, absolutely left behind at, at, at a rate of knots that one simply wouldn't have imagined. Mm -hmm. Even in Saudi Arabia, let alone the Emirates or Doha or Oman. But they need that security bubble in which they feel confident to advance the sort of cultural, societal, human rights, agenda, and diversification. They're, they're very intelligent people. They view the world. But security is uppermost, and the confidence that security gives them. And that's what they look to. Their natural instinct is to look to the West. I'm going to paraphrase another perception <clears throat> that's, I think, sometimes held of us, that the West has been loud where we should have been quiet, but soft where we should have been firm. How do we equate our values are democratic, liberal values <clears throat> and standing up for those and upholding those on a global platform with being a dependable and solid ally for states who have a very different idea of how to do things. Sharia law is, is a very different system. How do we manage that? Can we compete with the likes of Russia and China to be an ally of choice and maintain our values as we stand before them? Yes, I, I genuinely think we can, but I do think we are a bit strident. And I do think this comes back to the pressure that politicians come under from, from very strident, I won't say special interest groups, but groups who, you know, that's, that's their agenda. And it is very difficult to go, go there. Part of it is, is, is to say, this will serve you. And as I say, I think the stewardship, these are stewardships. You know, the House of Saud, Leonis, they, they have a, a status that is totally different from Assad or Saddam Hussein. Again, people from the outside look in and they think, oh, it's a monarchy, it's, you know, there's no elections. You know it, and many people who know the Gulf know it. The patriot politics are alive and well, because you can't keep your status as the head of the tribe unless the, the goodness, as it were, comes down. The majlis of the capacity for a Bedou elder to walk in to talk to now president of the UAE and complain and see that dealt with in a manner that's so much more effective and so much quicker than going through Western bureaucracies. So again, there is some people have a vested interest in telling you how bad it is. And a lot of them are here and I go to various forums and there are people who classify as dissidents. And this goes back to our failure to spot the agenda. Muslim Brotherhood are very good at talking the language of the West, freedom of speech, democracy, right. in power, we've seen they adopt a very, very different thing, Egypt classically classic, look at Turkey, but they get it hearing here because they know exactly who they can co-opt as allies to put pressure on governments. Now, some of it is absolutely legitimate. As we said, you know, this is freedom of speech. This is equality of sexes, this is women's rights. Why wouldn't you, why would you waste 50% of your, but sometimes we forget how far and fast we have come in Western societies. Well, even things we take for granted, like straight women's rights, women's education, these were not a given. Homosexuality. Homosexuality, a classic one. And we see it, you know, Commonwealth Games, 70, 70 nations there, half of them would still ban homosexualities. I'd be looking to Iraq, or I'd be looking to Iran and say, my goodness, look what's happened there. Everything's gone backwards and it's got worse. And if you think, I said, that there's something better is coming out of the House of Saud than potentially chaos and attack theory influenced government or very socially conservative government that would absolutely reverse all the slow but very steady and probably irreversible, I hope, reforms that are taking place now. 
we, we think. So that's, that's what we want to encourage from the sidelines to continue to lead this reform, but within the structured cultural, the cultural tolerances that they can push. And but these can... things do change, you know, and, and different, different generations have different agendas, but you've got to cover about three generations or their opinions when you're making major social changes. Again, I put it in my book, it's helpful to identify that a, a, an autocratic regime is never more vulnerable than when it's attempting to reform. Because you decide, I will open the door this wide, I will have control of how slowly or quickly it opens. And once the door is off the latch, the temptation for certain elements to try and kick it in is almost unsustainable. And what eventually happens is you get chaos happened in Egypt. What does everybody cry out for? Security. And what happens is the military of some description or some people with guns come back here and everybody says, phew, at least my children, my wives, my parents, I'm safe again. And so that's why I say to people, we should, you know, it's why I'm such a passionate about the study of history to draw lessons, not because, you know, as, as dear old Mark Twain said, it doesn't repeat itself, but occasionally it does rhyme. And we've watched reform movements and we've seen where the reform movements go horribly wrong. We have been hugely fortunate in this country by virtue of our history, our constitutional settlement, our geography. We have managed to, since the English Civil War, and that was, you know, as, as bloody as anything we fought, it's not often acknowledged that, we've managed to manage reform and take the forward edge, buy people into the system, make the right sensible compromises. Do the Gulf states want to see the West thrive and do well? Yes, I think they do. I genuinely think they do. And, and their instinct is with us. There's nothing in Russia and nothing in China that is a model for their reform movement. To my mind, if anything, you know, the, the social control that, that goes with that. There are elements that they would feel comfortable with. Again, the Chinese come with no conditionality. Where we leave a vacuum, the Chinese will be here. The Chinese are not going to challenge us militarily in the Gulf. They've got enough on their hands over in the you know, South China Sea at the moment while they continue to build up their armed forces. We continue, of course, to be the guardian of secure access to energy for the Chinese. So they're complete free riders. And economics has impact on politics and politics eventually will have impact on security. But where they have confidence in us, their instinct is to go with us. Nobody goes and has a second head in Beijing or Moscow. So their instinct is there. But again, when just always got to factor in the cultural aspect, the religious aspect, the socially conservative aspect of Arab Muslim culture. And I guess some would say that's being a true liberal. That might be a true liberal. They had to celebrate a bit of diversity, fun enough, in this. This uniform world, but it is it is important, and at the heart of it, we're doing ourselves a favour by contributing security in a really strategically important part. On the other hand, we are also, to my mind, genuinely providing the security underpinning that allows the reform movements that we should all be applauding to take place, but at a time and and, and pace of their choosing and acceptability. But it'll move faster the more secure they feel, particularly given the demographics, where an average age of twenty-two, of which Half of those are young women who understand the whole issue of women's rights and women's empowerment and women's opportunities through their capacity to access the outside world. And finally, at time of recording, we're waiting to find out who our next prime minister is going to be. And that prime minister is going to step into a bunch of domestic challenges, post-COVID society and making Brexit work in a very globally turbulent and dangerous world. What would your advice be to the next Prime Minister with regards the Middle East and more widely? Well, more widely, I'd say continue to embrace the idea of global Britain. There is a huge appetite for British engagement out there. And British engagement is good for our prosperity. I think Britain's influence in the world is something that people seek. They look for a self-confident Britain. They look for a Britain that's optimistic, that's outward looking. It's all there. Commonwealth Games, 72 nations, etc. The Middle East is, is an area of critical strategic importance to us, but to the world. They want a security guarantee to an extent. They look to the West for that. If they don't get it from us, they'll look to somebody else. We should absolutely remain global. We've got a huge amount to offer. And one of the places where we absolutely put a push at an open door for all sorts of cultural, historical, emotional reasons is, is the Middle East and the Gulf. And Britain should absolutely as far to remain really actively engaged there all the time. Lieutenant General Sir Simon Mayle, author of Soldier in the Sand, it's been a pleasure speaking. I think we are less confused and at a higher level. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much, Charlotte. It's been a huge pleasure. Mm -hmm.